I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. This is Gardening with the RHS. I'm Guy Barter. It's approaching a season we get very excited by at the RHS. Spring! Hiya, Becky Mealy here from RHS Gardening Advice. Just admiring my lovely springtime garden. The bulbs are really doing their thing, but for me, the star of the show has to be my red camellia. I'm Jenny Bowden, and I'm one of the gardening advisors at Wisley. A plant for me which really signals spring is wild garlic. It's also known as ramsons. I like it because it's kind of got attitude. It doesn't like to stay in one place. In fact, you could say it's rather invasive. You can grow it in a pot and that would be my recommendation. My name is Sylvia Travers. I'm the team leader of the Innerwall Garden at RHS Bridgewater. The tree that signals spring for me is the peach. I'm sheltering from the rain in our new fruit house at Bridgewater, where the peaches are just starting to open their dusky pink flowers on bare branches. They are a pleasant contrast to the whitewashed walls behind them. Peregrine is my favourite variety. It is a white flesh peach with a fuzzy crimson blush. It has an excellent flavour and crops from July to August, depending on where you are in the UK. But with this time of year comes lots to do. For example, sowing hardy seeds outdoors, tender seeds indoors, mowing the lawn, giving it a bit of fertiliser, finishing off the pruning, sorting out the hedges, being careful to check for bird nests, of course. There really is not a moment to lose. Shortly, I'll be joined by one of my colleagues from the RHS Gardening Advice Team to talk through some more top jobs to do. I'll be speaking to dahlia expert Dr Keith Hammett and looking at how to propagate houseplants with James Lawrence. So let's start with advisor Lee Hunt, who's with me now. Hello, Lee. Hello. It's so nice to be here, Guy. So what's the number one thing people should think about for spring? Well, actually, at this time of year, I think it is about getting sorted with your seeds. So we all often want flowers to fill areas in the garden and this is the perfect time to begin to grow things, whether it's for the vegetable garden or for our flower borders. I don't like to sow things too early. I haven't actually got a lot of specialist greenhouses and propagators. A lot of my stuff started on the windowsill and I find starting them off, things like cosmos, as we go into April, much better than beginning it earlier. So if you haven't started this is the perfect time to begin to do those things. It's also that moment, of course, where 
I can begin to do a bit more proper sowing out in the vegetable patch. So some of the things that are slightly hardier, like peas, can already go out and things like carrots. And then I can prepare really the beds for other things that are going to come, which are tender, because I know all I need to do really is keep them weed free and I can take my opportunity as we do get those good warm days. Yes, I know what you mean. I've got a big box of seeds in the corner of the room in order in the date they need to be sown. It looks quite a a challenge at this time. But before I can even think about sowing, I've got to wait for the soil to dry out. You really need dry soil so it can warm up. And at the moment, um, I'm looking probably in the next couple of weeks, I can actually start sowing things. As you say, it's a mistake to sow too early because you don't gain very much in the cold days of March. But in April, things really take off and then it can rain as much as it likes because we all know that April showers bring the flowers. I haven't actually heard that, guys. That's an old Dorset saying. That is an old Dorset saying. Very old, very true. So, what other jobs are there to do right now, Lee? Well, I have to say, I often look at just getting the general structure of the garden right at this time, because over the winter, things like the lawn edges will often become rather tatty. So just cutting those neatly will instantly improve the look of the garden, running the lawn mower over. Although this year, I'm definitely going to keep patches in the front garden longer. So I'm not going to mow those. I'm just going to mow some paths through them. So I'm hoping to get some good wildflowers slash weeds coming up in the lawn that will make that more ornamental without doing anything. Also, I'm going to use it to make a bit more structure as well. So by carving a path through the front garden, it'll kind of line up with the front door. So I'm hoping that the postman will find that handy as well. It's Easter next week and that's an early Easter. Easter is the time when a lot of people buy garden plants. Have you got any hints or tips of people who are thinking of buying new plants at Easter? Yeah, I think the first one is, I know I'm guilty of this, do be tempted to go down and buy things that look good now. Because I think often our gardens at this time of year, we've had a long old winter and we are ready for that sort of hit of colour. And if we don't go down and find out what looks good fills this colour gap at this time of year, we never end up introducing those things into the garden. Obvious things are things like daffodils and You can buy them in pots now or you could wait to buy bulbs in the autumn, depending on how good you are at getting your timings right and remembering to do things. But there's lots of other things now. I'm just looking at things like flowering currants, that very classic shrub that comes with pink flowers, pendulous, can have white ones too. So quite a bit of choice. Magnolias are fantastic, small ones, big ones. Of course, we've gone into them in a big way, but things like small cherry trees as well, things like the upright. Got one called Rosa Plena Ascendens. Big masses of pink flowers at this time, so it gives you a really good hit of colour. So there's that. The thing I wouldn't be doing necessarily if I haven't got a greenhouse or a room on my windowsills is buying lots of tender bedding plants. They are from smaller pots, cheaper now so if you can buy them they're a good buy but they still can't go out until the end of may or early june when we've definitely got no frosts so it's having place to store them and grow them on i tend to go for hardy things first because i'm using all my windowsills as i mentioned for growing seeds at the moment one of the things that's so important at this season is planting summer bulbs are you keen on summer bulbs and what should you do to get them off successfully yeah, I actually really like summer bulbs. Obviously, by that, we mean things that we're planting now and will flower 
in sort of various phases between July and September. I always like lilies. You know, they provide a good hit of colour. They're always useful to stick into pots because you can always kind of move them round when they're in flower and then push them out the back somewhere out of sight once they've finished. Other thing I love, of course, is dahlias and grown these for many, many years. They're quite easy going. This time you'll buy them either as potted plants, but more often they'll still be available in packets. So you'll get dried tubers. Look out at the tops because there should be some signs of shoots. And if they look shriveled, avoid them because that can mean that they've just been sat on the shelf now too long and have really given up. When you get them, pot those up. I usually go for something about six to nine inches across because they're quite big to get in a pot. They don't have to be sunk right to the bottom if you've got a bit of a small pot, but as long as you can get the majority of the tuber with some multi-purpose compost around, keep them just damp initially to get those roots going and then they'll soon start to sprout away. They will need frost protection, so I have to grow those on the windowsill. Of course, you can grow them from seed as well. So there's still time to get them packed to something like the, the bishop's children with all those dark leaves and those very mixed colours, which are quite useful because you get surprises. But some I will keep each year and over winter because I like them and others I will kind of ditch thinking I've got better than this. So it's funny, it's a bulb you can grow from seed. How often can you do that with bulbs and get results in one season? Dahlias are definitely something to worth trying. Yes, I would agree with you there. But, you know, all this talk of gardening jobs has made me feel quite stressed. I mean, have you got a time-saving tip for me? I think that the most time-saving tip at this time of year is if you've got a weedy bed, you know that you're having to get the weeds out quite regularly. Get some mulch around those plants, things like perennials and shrubs, before it all grows too much. You've got, you know, just a week or two now left really for getting some, whether it's well-rotted compost or a bag of mulch around that, that should mean if you get a good three inches or more on that you have no weeding to do for the whole season. So that little bit of work getting it on seems to pay dividends. And I'd rather spend time in the summer doing other things rather than weeding. So little work now saves work later. And obviously does other things like keeping the moisture as well. So it saves me even watering. That's a great tip. And I've got a huge load of well-rotted farmyard manure delivered that's been too wet and heavy for me to move up until now. So I can get on with that this weekend. You've given us an awful lot of tips here, Lee. But um, is there one final passing hint you'd like to give for people to have a successful spring? I think the thing to do is a lot of this can feel like work because we have the time. But it is also making time to sit down get a cup of tea or a glass of wine as the evenings warm up and just sit back and enjoy it as well. Because, you know, like when I go out at the moment and do a bit of digging, the robin comes and joins me and will sing for his supper. It's taking that time really to enjoy what is there, what what is enjoyable. And there's so much to enjoy in the garden at the moment that why not? It's just nice to be out there. Thanks, Lee. That's really good. I'm definitely going to go to the garden centre at Easter and get some really interesting, bright things in my patio too. As Lee mentioned there, now is a great time to think about getting those summer flowering bulbs in the ground. 
One of the country's favourites is the iconic dahlia, well known for its diverse forms with everything from tiny pom-pom flowers to gigantic frilly blooms the size of a football. The choice is endless. I'm a huge fan of dahlias. One of my first jobs working with the RHS many years ago was to look after the dahlia trial on the Portsmouth Field at Wisley. We had 200 dahlias, 200 different kinds of dahlias, I should say, three plants of each. And not only did we grow them all summer, but every day, every week, all through September until the October frosts came, we'd go out in the dewy morning with a big dustbin each, a pair of secateurs, and deadhead them so that they flowered continuously, making a wonderful display deep into the autumn. And the other thing was there's so many different kinds of dahlias, so many classes, and we had examples of all of them in this trial. But how do we have so many types? Specialist breeders like Dr Keith Hammett are to thank. In fact, Keith's pioneering plant breeding work is so important, we at the RHS have awarded him the Veatch Memorial Medal. I spoke to Keith to learn all about how he creates these hybrid beauties. Every flower has a period when it's in fashion and when it's out of fashion. For quite a long time, dahlias were actually despised. There, there is a short poem which sort of says, hurrah, hurrah, the frost are here, the dahlias are dead. Florists would say, well, the only use for a dahlia is chuck it on a coffin during a funeral. But what has happened is that with the flower farmers coming along, there's a whole new generation of people who are discovering it anew. They're fascinated. I mean, the vibrancy of colour in the dahlia. So I think that is, you know, number one attraction is the vibrancy of the colour. There's this vast range of flower types. There's a huge diversity in the dahlia. It's probably got more diversity than any other ornamental plant. The reason for this is that it is an octoploid, which means that it's got four sets of all the chromosome pairs which gives you endless permutations. And I tend to refer to the dahlia as the dog of the plant world because it's as different as a Great Dane is from a Dachshund. The interesting thing is there are about 42 species of dahlias, but the whole garden dahlia that we're used to is the result of a single hybridization between just two species. So the whole of that diversity that we've got has been based on the genetic variability of that single hybrid. In the show world, you classify on size so that you have your giant dahlias at one end and you have your pom-poms down at the other end. And then the different shapes of what people will call petals, they're actually individual flowers, but the individual petal, if you think of it as starting as being flat for a decorative dahlia, if you roll it inwards, you can end up with a pom-pom form or a ball dahlia form. And if you turn that petal in the other direction and make it revolute or twist backwards, you end up with a cactus form, which you know has a spiky outline. Most plants have a color missing from the spectrum. I mean, the dahlia is missing a decent blue. That has been the holy grail of dahlia breeding in the same way as the sweet pea is missing yellow. Those of us who indulge in breeding, you know, try and attain the, um, something which is missing. 
the difficulty with a dahlia as opposed to a sweet pea or quite a lot of other plants is that the flower that we look at is actually an inflorescence, which means that it's a collection of flowers. And the what we call petals are in reality ray florets. And then in the center of the dahlia, even the double one before it opens, has got a disc where there are a great many smaller yellow flowers. And it is those which actually are able to produce the seed. Now, from a pollinating point of view, it means that only a few of those are receptive at any one time. So that if I were to pollinate by hand, I would have to keep doing it every day. And I still wouldn't be particularly successful. So what most breeders do is they select the parents, grow them in isolation from other dahlias, and let the bees and the butterflies do the pollinating. Different species have different chromosome numbers, and only plants with the same chromosome number are able to hybridize. That has enabled us uh, to work, for instance, with the tree dahlias, Dahlia imperialis, which you won't see much of in Britain because it flowers quite late in the autumn and would get cut by frost, is quite striking in warmer parts of New Zealand, Australia, south of France, places like that. They're called tree dahlias because they will grow to three or four metres. For over a hundred years, people had been trying to cross it with the garden dahlia to increase the colour range. And of course they couldn't because they had different chromosome numbers. Among the collection, particularly of dahlia coccinia, the researcher, Dr. Melanie Gatt, found there were different tribes with the appropriate chromosome number that could be crossed with the tree dahlia. So um, that has led to some quite interesting work. We were looking at the situation and then saying, what if? You can read more from Keith in the summer edition of our publication, The Plant Review, which will be out in June. Published four times a year, The Plant Review is a magazine that takes an in-depth look at the bizarre, brilliant and beautiful plants that grow both in gardens and the wild. If you're looking to raise your plant game and make some discerning decisions about what to try next, it's vital reading. See more, including a digital taster edition at rhs.org.uk forward slash the plant review. Moving indoors now is the perfect time to start propagating houseplants. To help you master the art, I want to pass the microphone over to RHS gardening advisor James Lawrence. With the right conditions and the right environment, propagation can really help provide new plants from your existing houseplants. Now, there are various different propagation methods, and I'm going to go through the sort of three main ones. The first method we're going to look at is leaf cuttings. Whole leaf cuttings can be done on plants such as African violets or peperomia. And it involves removing the leaves with their leaf stalks, their leaf stems intact, and simply inserting the leaf stalk into the compost, ensuring that the base of the leaf is just in contact with the compost, but not too deeply buried. And then it's a case of making sure that that is firmed in gently, that it is watered, but the water can drain away. 
And then really important is to cover that cutting with either a propagation lid or if you've done it in a pot, they use a clear bag and put that somewhere which gets filtered light. So not direct sunlight, but certainly not in shade. And eventually you will see new plantlets form from the base of that leaf stalk. And that's generally a good indication of when you can remove the bag, but do occasionally then still miss the plant. Now, with most houseplant propagation, and certainly with leaf cuttings in particular, if you do have access to bottom heat, that can help speed the process up. Other types of leaf cuttings are what we call part leaf cuttings. So for plants such as Sansevieria, the mother-in-law's tongue that has long upright leaves, you can actually cut horizontal sections about five centimetres wide, and then insert them into a kind of shallow trench within a tray or a pot. So once that section of leaf is inserted into that compost and it's firmed in slightly so it's stable, again, propagation lid on to keep the humidity up, bottom heat helps, and you will see often it can be anywhere between four to ten weeks, depending on the environment. You'll see new plantlets form from the bottom. So that was leaf cuttings. Stem cuttings, lots of houseplants can be propagated via stem cuttings and they are often used with what we call softwood material or in some cases semi-ripe material, which is where the stems are just starting to harden. And this is normally done in late spring and early summer. The thing to do with stem cuttings is to try and ensure that you select a non-flowering stem. So on flowering houseplants, sometimes this can be quite difficult to find a non-flowering stem. So select a non-flowering stem and you're looking at a sort of 10 to 15 centimetre, 4 to 6 inch section. And you make a cut just below a leaf joint or what we call a node. You would then remove any lower leaves so that you have a clear section of stem with just a small cluster of leaves at the tip. Generally I would fill nine to ten centimetre pots with a seed or cutting compost using a dibber or a pencil to make a hole, insert the cutting, ensure that the leaves that you've left on the tip are not touching the compost, firm that in, lightly water, cover that with a bag or a propagator lid to keep the humidity in, you can also get summer house plants to root just using a simple kind of water method. So basically you can cut some healthy non-flowering material again just below a node and you can suspend that stem over a jar of water, for example, and roots will form from that node and they will sense that there is a water source below and they will actually put out roots to try and reach down into that water. And when you've got enough root system, you can then pot it on into a suitable, well-drained houseplant mix. The final method to mention for propagating houseplants is division. And just as we would divide certain plants in the garden, there are some houseplants that you can also divide. This particularly tends to be for plants that produce fibrous root systems and that throw up new stems or new leaves around the edge of a pot. Commonly, this might be seen on things like Sansevieria, the mother-in-law's tongue, asparagus ferns, peace lilies might also do this. So you'll see they're throwing up new growth basically from parts of their root system. 
So in order to divide, generally it's a good idea to kind of water the plants generally about an hour before you're planning on dividing them. It just kind of reduces the stress level a bit and then gently tease apart the young plants. So often they will pull apart fairly easily with enough roots intact on them and you can pot them on into their individual pots. If they are very congested, which can happen in some larger house plants, then you might have to be a bit more drastic and use a sharp knife to cut through the root ball. And generally, plants recover very well from this. Just like plants that might be in the garden, if certain houseplants aren't divided occasionally, they can become very crowded and therefore they can suffer from nutrition problems and other issues that they can get from being basically pot-bound. James Lawrence. And now for something I'm particularly passionate about, peat-free growing. It's becoming an ever more important topic, whatever time of year. My colleague, Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine, is also very interested in this subject. Hello, Chris. Hello, Guy. Why is peat-free growing so important to you? Well, it's just something that, you know, is a really big issue, not only peat from an environmental issue, but also peat use in horticulture. And I know it's something that the podcast and your good self and many of us in the RHS have been talking about for years. So we felt it was time to do a bit of an update in the April issue of The Garden magazine. Yes, it's certainly a topic of the moment, not least because DEFRA are expected to produce their long-awaited report on replacing peat in amateur and professional horticulture with other products. I remember when we started out on this in the 1990s and uh, gradually came to take it on board. And I've been peat-free growing now for 20 years and the formulations have improved out of all recognition. In fact, I find that some peat-free media are actually easier to use than peat. And I think, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I've spoken to you before about this and, you know, I know know that you've been very much leading the peat-free approach and and your experience is really useful and valuable. But I think a lot of people have been put off a bit about the variability, about maybe the water um, retention and the fact that peat-free media can look drier on the top, but actually it's still got quite a lot of water retention lower down. So I think when we started off talking about this 10, 15 years ago in the magazine, we were trying to re-educate people on how to use peat-free growing media. And it was all sort of a mind shift and actually it probably isn't as bad as that and it's probably just getting used to it and going for it but just understanding that you can't use it necessarily in the same way that you might have used all multi-purpose or peat-based compost from seed sowing to growing plants in containers so there is a little bit of education going on but I think as the industry is being quite slow if we're fair to react to this I think now that the industry is starting to speed up a bit that we're hopefully going to give a bit more consistency for people and more people will be using them not as a choice but just because that's the default position that people should be in. And talking about the April issue, we discussed probably the most iconic gravel garden in the world earlier this month on the podcast as we visited Beth Chateau's garden. But this month's issue looks at some other partner gardens that have interesting gravel gardens. Can you tell me more? Yeah, I think people might know that we have this great collection of more than 200 partner gardens around the country, which RHS members can visit for free at certain times of the year and month. And actually, when you look at them, there are some similarities in them. And some have amazing rose gardens, some have stupendous water features, and quite a few have actually really great gravel gardens. So we thought it'd be a really useful summary 
this month when in April when you might be thinking about making some changes in your gardens you might want to be doing some um, planting before the dry summer starts so you can get those plants established and those roots in the ground so we thought we'd do a roundup of some of um, the key partner gardens which have got great gravel gardens so we included places like Denman's the, the late John Brooks's garden down in West Sussex Cambo Gardens up in Fife uh, Helmsley Walled Garden in North Yorkshire and we talked to those head gardeners and garden owners and just said look what are some of the key tips about the style of gravel gardening because I don't know about you guys but I think when you talk to people about gravel gardens they can sometimes be a bit put off that it's got to look like Beth Chateau's in terms of its size or its scale or the informality and actually gravel gardening is just a sort of a different mindset in one way but actually it's kind of using the right plant right place having a lower maintenance or low amount of input so it's really been useful to look at the different places in the country and look at those different gardens where gravel gardens thrive and succeed so it's been a, hopefully a useful feature for people to look at yes they are an underused feature in my opinion speaking of features you've got another one on the new rhs hilltop building too so hilltop the home of gardening science is um, not only a architecturally stunning beautiful but actually more importantly and with the greatest respect to the architects more importantly is about what goes on in that building and so we've asked Matthew Biggs to do a couple of articles for us firstly for this April issue which is looking at the building the sustainability of the building what the building's doing why we needed it its role and the importance of this building that represents science and research for gardening and then in June he's going to be looking at the outside space the three gardens that are being designed and created around the building uh, which will help in form and deliver actual science in action. So um, yeah, it's a big six-page feature here in April where Matt goes really into great detail about all of the range of the building and all the elements that make it and, and why we needed it. It sounds fantastic. I remember when that area was the RHS glass houses and I spend my weekend duty watering the chrysanthemums and my office was in a tractor shed there as well oh, about, was it? <laughs> about, about 30 years ago. And I had the rather dubious pleasure of watching a bulldozer bulldoze my old office. Oh, <laughs> I always forget you that you've been around so much, guys. <laughs> yes. But one of the features of the magazine under your guidance has been the wide range of articles you've managed to cram in. Is there anything of interest this month that we should be particularly looking out for? Well, yes. I mean, when I talk to your colleague Fiona about this as another podcast host, we I always say, yes, there's loads to say. So I'm going to say the same again, Guy, as it's you. Uh, yeah, there's always so much. So we've got a whole other range of articles this month. We've got a urban space in um, St. Petersburg in Russia. I don't know much about Russian gardening or Russian garden design, except there's been quite a few garden designers who've come gone from the UK to work over there. But this is a company called Mox, who've done effectively a new perennial style urban plaza of planting, which looks absolutely stupendous. We have a feature by some experts, uh, all about heritage veg, which I thought might tickle your fancy guy. So we've asked six aficionados to name some of their favourite heritage veg. So we just got some great excuse even if people don't read the article to look at the plant names so tomato <laughs> bloody butcher and onion walla walla sweet we focusing on garden beetles houseplants wooden anemones and of course breeding developments in india of water lilies and lotus flowers and that is your april issue well that sounds a real treat i should look forward to landing on my doormat but chris there's a sad note to this after 10 years you are relinquishing the reins 
I am. Yes, yeah, so 15 years at the RHS and 10 and a half years as editor. I'm now stepping down as editor, so I'm going to be what's called RHS editor-at-large, which my family find hysterical because they say I'm putting on weight being at home for the last year. But yeah, it was time. I've absolutely had the best job in the world, both as editor of The Garden, but also as the other role that I do, which is head of editorial, which was overseeing all of our publishing. But it is time for a change. So I'm going to be part-time for the RHS and doing some other projects outside of the RHS. So still very much about, but I, you won't see my smiling or grimacing face on the magazine from after April. Well, I'm sorry to end on a bit of a prosaic note, but when am I going to get my April issue through the letterbox? And <laughs> back to what you really want to know. End of March, you'll be getting the April issue. I look forward to that very much. Thank you for that. Thank you, Guy. That brings today's show to an end. But do visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast for more information on today's tips. And do also listen out for more peat-free growing advice in the coming weeks. If I were to leave you with one resounding message from today's show, it would be sort out those lawn edges. It's a lovely job, but after you've done it, the edges look so smart and lovely, you feel really pleased with yourself. In fact, I'm going to go and find my edging iron and have a go at it right now. So thanks for listening and I'll see you soon if I can drag myself away from all those spring jobs. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.